But I would ask that you would give attention to the reading of God's Word. It is alive and it gives life. This is the very Word of God. It is inerrant, it is sufficient, and it is authoritative. Philippians chapter 4, I'd like to begin at verse 1 and read to verse 5. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us. We ask, O Lord, that by your Spirit, you would open up not merely the words themselves, but the meaning, the application, what you would have us to know and do from your word, O Lord. And so, we come to your word with humble hearts, with open minds, to learn from you, O Lord. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I have a good friend who wrote recently about his experience going into Madison Avenue advertising firms. He had a relative who was involved in the artwork that's done in layouts for magazines and billboards and other things. And his relative was showing him the various pieces of very sophisticated equipment that are used to produce these ads. It went from step to step to step until they got to the very end. And they saw men hunched over pictures, prints, and photographs working feverishly. And he said, well, what's that? He said, well, that is the airbrush division. They take out all the imperfections. There's a mole there on the model. They can take that right out. They can make age lines disappear. They can do... All of these things and make the picture perfect. And this is spread beyond fancy Madison Avenue shops. Now anyone who has a few hours worth of experience with Photoshop can make you look perfect 20 years younger. This is what we do to sell products. And it's a challenge for our families. It's one of the reasons why many children, many young people have a low self-esteem because they can't match up to the reality of the ads, which are not real at all. That's troublesome enough in that context. But it's even more troubling when that comes into the context of the church. As we think about the church and we think about how the church should be perfect. The church should be a place of rest. 
The church should be a place that is peaceful and calm and tranquil. You see, it's not just those who are outside saying, I won't ever go to church. They're a bunch of hypocrites. Often it's us. We have a a difficult week. We are battered about in the job arena. We have challenges with our children, challenges at school, challenges with finances. And we want to come into church and expect a soothing meadow of grain. Expect it to be like a scene from a movie where everyone smiles all the time, where everything is perfect and there are no problems to be seen as far as the eye can see. The problem with that is the only perfect church is the one that exists in our mind. Because after all, as soon as we join it, it becomes imperfect. Not that it was perfect to start with, but knowing our own faults. And we know that in our hearts because one of the reasons we long for perfection is because we know we are imperfect. We want a place where we can be free and soothed from all that challenges us. Paul is telling us today that the church is not perfect. But the church is a place, in a sense, something better for the Christian. The church is a place not where we stand around and just look at the results of the gospel. A church is a place where we actively employ the gospel to build each other up, to build relationships, not just to see peaceful meadows, but to be involved in making small pockets of meadows of peace. And so what I would like us to see this morning is the church in its role as a peacemaker. You may recall we've been going through now a small series within a series about what Paul says the church should be like. We looked last week at the steadfast church, and this morning we'll look at the peacemaking church. You can't have a church that is firm where there is not peace. And so we will first see the making of peace, what it means to make peace. And then second, we will look at the mission of peace. Why is it that we are called to make peace in the church? And then thirdly, we'll think about something that I think can be even more challenging. Not just the making of peace, not just the mission of peace, but maintaining peace. Because often the real challenge for the church is maintaining the peace that God has given to her. Well, let's look first then at the making of peace. Verse 2 of chapter 4 of Philippians is one of the most interesting and odd verses in all of the Scripture. If you think about it, we've been reading through great doctrine. We've been having great exhortations from Paul. There have been number after number after number of these verses that we can hang up on our wall and contemplate for weeks on end. And then in the midst of this, Paul calls out, Two ladies. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, I don't want you to be thrown off by the Greek names. This could just as easily be Harriet and Sally. It could just as easily be Roberta and Ramona. The fact that Paul is calling these two women out for an important task 
for an important reason, lets us know something important about making peace. The first and foremost thing that we need to learn is that in order to make peace, we must be willing to speak. That sounds simple. It sounds like something that is a no-brainer. But in our day and age, often being willing to speak is exceedingly difficult. You see, being willing to speak means putting fear aside. It means speaking without fear. Paul has talked earlier about the dangers of divisions and the need for unity in the Philippian church. He's talked about it in general terms. He's talked about it in theological terms. And now here, the rubber is meeting the road. Don't kid yourself. It would have been exceedingly easy for the Apostle Paul to simply let this one lay. After all, he was dependent upon the Philippians for support. They helped put food on his table at great cost to themselves. He was in a great deal of personal difficulty and turmoil. You would not be able to blame him for not entering into a conflict hundreds of miles away when he's chained to a Roman prisoner and people are trying to attack him. But instead, Paul enters in here without fear. This is something that our society, I think, has lost. The ability to speak without fear. Perhaps you have seen the news shows where they set people up in a coffee shop, a Starbucks, or a restaurant. They bring in two people, and one person simply attacks the other. Usually, it's a younger child attacking an older person. And they wait to see if anyone will say anything. And very often, people are silent. They cringe. They get up and leave. They notice the disruption in the peace, but they're unwilling to do anything about it. Not so Paul. Paul is willing to speak. He's willing to speak without fear. But he's also, as importantly, willing to speak with compassion. You see, Paul doesn't just simply roll over these two ladies. He doesn't just simply come out blasting, guns blazing, telling them what they have to do, how they will do it, and when they do should do it. No, look at the structure of this sentence. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche. You notice anything unusual about that? Paul repeats himself. He says, I entreat Twice. And he uses the word entreat. I'm pretty sure that there's 30 to 40 percent of us here that don't even know what the word entreat means. We haven't seen it used very often. We know words like, I command, I order, I tell you, listen to me. We don't hear the word entreat very often. But this word is a word that you know very well. It's a word that you know so well, I can even say it in the Greek. It's parakaleo. It's that word for the paraclete. It's that word for the comforter. Paul says, I comfort you. I come alongside you. I beg you. I entreat you, ladies. Please agree in the Lord. You see, Paul is willing to speak without fear, but he is not willing to speak without compassion. He repeats this verb twice as if he is addressing them face to face. It's as if they were sitting in a room and he looked at the one and then looked at the other, speaking both to them in a calm tone of voice. 
We don't see much of that in our society either, do we? Oftentimes, if we go back to our illustration, when the people in the coffee shop or the restaurant see this disruption of peace, the solution is to come over and start yelling at one of the parties to try and stop the bludgeoning by bludgeoning. That's what happens in our society so often. Not so Paul. He's certainly not afraid, but he is willing to be compassionate. He speaks without fear, he speaks with compassion, and he also speaks with a solution. This is something else that seems to be in short supply, both in and outside the church. Oftentimes we are willing to come alongside someone, to say something, even to try and say it in as gentle a fashion as possible. But all we can really say is, couldn't you just be nice? Can't you just work this out? Can't you take care of this? We have no solution to offer. But Paul says there is a solution. It is a biblical solution. And the big picture of that solution is to agree in the Lord. Now, what does Paul mean by this? Why is Paul asking them to agree in the Lord? The first thing that he is saying is, he's saying, I want you to be of the same mind. This is a phrase that we have seen earlier. If you turn back in Philippians to chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul has asked the Philippians to complete his joy. And the way they are to complete it is by being of the same mind, having the same love. And you may recall that we said being of the same mind was not just thinking the exact same thoughts. So what Paul is saying here is not, ladies, here's the right thing. The two of you need to agree with that. Okay? Now get on with your lives. No, what he's saying is something far more fundamental. He's saying, you must have the same mind. You must have the same purpose, the same attitude. This is our famous word for think that has that aspect of feeling. When Paul says, it is right for me to feel this way, to think this way about you. Paul is calling them not to just agree on one point. He is calling them to be of the same mind. This is a practical outworking of his command in chapter 2. And he's not just forcing them to do it either, because he says, I want you to agree in the Lord. Don't drop that from this verse. It's critical. It's what makes this solution biblical. It's what makes this solution possible. Paul says, I want you to be of the same mind, and first off, because you are united to the same Lord. You are both in the Lord. Therefore, you should think the same thoughts. You should have the same attitude, that attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Paul says, you are one with the Lord and therefore one with each other. This is the solution. There's also an aspect, though, in which not only are both of these women in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they are to agree with the Lord by means of the Lord, in the Lord's thinking. And where do we know what the Lord thinks? In His Word. So one of the first things we think about in terms of making peace is that we are to be biblical about our thoughts. We are to put aside our own preferences. We are to put aside our own predilections and we are to start with what does the Bible say? And then we are to move to how can I agree with my brother or sister with whom I have 
the closest bond in the universe. We are one in Christ. So, in order to make peace, first and foremost, we must be willing to speak. But there's another important element. We must be willing to listen. Now, I want you to think about these two women here. Remember the context of Philippians. Paul had written this letter to the Philippians because he couldn't come and visit them. He handed it to a messenger. Epaphroditus comes back with the letter, hands it to the person in charge of worship, and he is to read in the worship service this letter. And you imagine as chapter 1 goes by, there's some challenges, and everyone says, well, we understand that. Yes, Paul loves us. And Euodia and Syntyche are in the back or in the front or in the middle going, amen. Yes, amen. And chapter 2 goes on, and they hear about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe they're lost in prayer or thinking about what Jesus has done for them. And then we go into verse 3 where Paul tells them to watch out for the dangers that are about them. He tells them that they are to press on to Christ Jesus. And now we can almost even imagine in our sanctified imagination one or the other of them not only saying amen but giving a fist pump. Yes! And then in verse or chapter 4 we're just about to finish and wow! That's pretty uncomfortable. It's not just uncomfortable for Euodians in Tyche, is it? It's uncomfortable for everyone sitting around them. I won't give you a test case by doing that this morning. But if I did, I'm sure there would be some red faces and some shifting of ties and... Ooh. But I want you to think about something. Paul knows that these two women are spiritually mature enough to take this and for it to be a benefit to the entirety of the church. You know, there is a story, it may be apocryphal, that the famous 300 Spartans that were chosen to go to Thermopylae were chosen not for their bravery, not for their skill, but for the fact of the women in their lives who the king knew could stand up to the grief of losing a husband. Paul knows these two ladies can hear this. They may not want to hear it. They may not be ready to hear it or eager to hear it, but they can. They are willing to listen. Paul knew these two women. Well, who were they then? Well, they must have been significant women in the church. They must have been women, perhaps, who were the head of a party. They may not have called it a party. They may not have said, vote the straight Euodia ticket. They may not have had mascots that they put on pins on their lapels. But you know what this is like, don't you? You have been in churches, perhaps even in this church at a time, where you know there's the reds and the blues, the greens and the browns. There's the this person and the that person. We see it throughout Scripture. In Corinth it was so bad, there weren't just two parties, there were a whole bunch of parties. We know that these ladies are influential in the church. And the way that parties begin is by people being influential, by people working for the Lord, by people being respected. You see, one of the problems with this verse out of context is that we read it and all we think about is how bad Euodia and Syntyche must have been in order to get called out on the carpet by Paul. 
When in reality, we should be thinking about these ladies as mature Christians caught up in a difficulty that affected the whole church who were mature enough that they could take a rebuke from the Apostle Paul. These are not wicked women. These are not bad examples. These ladies are the better ones of you and me. This is something that we all fall prey to. We might even think that these two ladies were involved in the first group of women who met by the river with Lydia for prayer because there weren't enough men to make a synagogue. You needed 11 men to have a synagogue. And if you didn't have 11, the ladies would go off in another place and pray and read the scriptures. These were ladies who had an impact on their city and their society. They are described in the next verse by Paul as fellow workers in the gospel. These are women who are willing to listen to what Paul has to say. And if we are to make peace, we must not only be the ones who speak, we must be the ones who listen. We saw that providentially this morning in the scripture that Andrew read. We are to be slow to speak. But what? Swift to listen. This is what is involved with making peace. The third and final thing with making peace is not only being willing to speak and willing to listen, but you must be willing to help. Paul is not going to sweep this problem under the rug. He is incredibly active in the lives of these ladies. He knows the personal danger that comes from conflict. That if these two ladies continue in their conflict, it will spread bitterness, pride, Unforgiveness, not just amongst them, but amongst all of those who are around them, their husbands, their children, their friends. Paul knows the danger. He also knows the corporate danger from this kind of conflict, the party spirit that can spring up and the instability that is in the church. And he's just told us he wants us to stand firm and be stable. So in order to do that, he must take an active role. But notice what he does not do. He does not take sides. You see that? He so much does not take sides that we don't even know what the conflict is. You know how difficult that is as a parent, don't you? Two children come over to you, fighting. It's always the other one's fault. You know the history You may have a good idea who really should get 60% of your wrath. But you try hard not to take sides. Because you also know as a parent that 15 minutes later they'll come back and it'll be the other one's fault. Paul is acting like a nursing father here. He doesn't take sides. He doesn't tell them who's wrong. He doesn't even tell them what the solution is. He's not going to impose his view upon them and make it a three-way battle. No, he says instead, you are to agree with the Lord. Now, that tells us one thing about this conflict that is comforting and frightening. This conflict is not about doctrine. How do we know that? Has Paul ever shied away from correcting false doctrine? He's let those who... Our Judaizers have it. He's let those who are too free and don't obey the law of God have it. He's let those who seek to impose their will upon others and believe wrong things about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
know that they are wrong. Paul is not shy about correcting what we are to believe in the Bible. So that's encouraging. This is not some deep-seated, difficult issue that requires a church council to come and spend months on. This doesn't require position papers and proof texts. But at the same time, it's frightening because this is a conflict that has Paul so concerned that it might destroy this wonderful church, so concerned that he calls these two women out by name, and it is not about the truth of God. It's about opinion. It's about relationships. It's about something that should be, quote, not a big deal, but it's a very big deal. You see, when we think things are not a big deal and we ignore them or we excuse them or we use that as an opportunity to puff out our push people around, that is when we are most at odds with God's view of the church, that it should be one body, it should be united that it should be governed by God's rule and God's law and God's teaching. Not just about who Jesus is, but about who we are and how we are to relate with each other. This is what it means to make peace. And Paul says the reason that we have to have peace in the church is because there is a, also a mission of peace. There is a mission that peace allows us to undertake. There is one purpose for the peaceful church. And that purpose is the gospel. You see the problem here? Paul says in verse 3, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. You see, Paul says the gospel is at stake here, not in its truth, but in its work and mission. The church has one mission, and that is to take the gospel to the world. And so he calls in other workers. He says, you, true companion. We don't know if that's Timothy. We don't know if that's Epaphroditus. We don't know who that is. But it's someone else he is calling out who knows that he's being called. And he says, you must take charge of this situation. Because the gospel is at stake. And if we think about that for longer than a moment, we understand it. Because how can we talk to others outside? about making peace when we don't work peace in our own midst? How can we? Why would an unbeliever, why would someone who does not know the peace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, why would they even want that if they look around and say, if that's what peace looks like, I don't want it. I've got bickering at home. I've got party splits in my family. I don't need that. I certainly don't need to give up everything like you're saying. I certainly don't need to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ to have that. So if we are going to spread the gospel of peace, of peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, of peace with each other through the power of the Spirit, we must exercise it in our own midst. You see, this is the purpose of the church that creates unity. Do we agree with what the gospel is? Do we agree with what we are to do with it? If that is the case, then there is no room for personal disagreements. All that does is splinter unity. Now, we're going to have personal disagreements because we're sinners. 
But that is not the purpose for the church. And so as we recognize these disagreements, we are to take the gospel and not just use it as something to be given to others, but to apply it to ourselves. To believe in the Lord. To have a purpose that is His purpose. There is one purpose for the mission of the church. And it is to spread the gospel. There is also only one community. The church is not meant to be differing societies with differing emphasis. No, the church is to have one community bound together to push forward the kingdom of God. To see the gospel affect and take hold of the lives of those around us. And this community is built up or established by our ABCs. You all know that, don't you? ABC. Three things. Accountability, building up, and care. That's what builds up and establishes a community. Notice how Paul calls accountability to task here. He says to his true companion, help these women. Now, the word here is very vivid. It actually literally means to take hold of them and lift them up from whence we get help. A perfectly good translation. You see, the help here is not standing off on the side and and pointing out things that would be useful. Well, you might want to. You know, if, if you read that book, no, this kind of help is a help that enters in Paul is calling the church at Philippi to come to these two ladies and to hold them accountable. To tell them the church and the world is bigger than they are. The gospel is bigger than they are. Their faith is bigger than they are. And that they need to follow their own beliefs and their own calling. The church at Philippi is to remind Euodia and Syntyche of what they believe is important. Not to impose an external standard, but to hold them accountable for their very own life. You see, Paul does not allow the two great errors of peacemaking. He does not allow peace-breaking, where we get our things done by force. He doesn't say take them and drag them into a room, put them under a hot light for a while until they give up, or the equivalent thereof. Badger them with Bible verses for hours on end until finally they give up. He also doesn't allow for peace faking. You see, there is peace breaking, but there is also peace faking. When we fake peace, you know what this is like. I dare say you've done it. I know I have. When you say, oh, that's not a big deal. Oh, no. And your stomach is in knots. Oh, no, I couldn't ever possibly be worried about that. And you go off to the side and tell everyone you know how hurt you are. I'm not talking about gossip. I'm saying when we refuse to publicly acknowledge that peace has been broken, when we refuse to come and to be drawn together to our fellow believers, when we fake that there is peace, that kind of odd truce in which everyone's happy that the problem is solved and we walk by each other in the halls. Or we see someone coming and we turn around and we go the other way. Or we go to a different church because we're just uncomfortable seeing them. Or perhaps we even move because we can't take the pressure. You see, that is not allowed in a community of faith. 
We can't have peace breaking and we can't have peace faking. We need to be accountable. But we also need to be building each other up. Notice how Paul describes the behavior of this church. These women are those who have labored side by side. And again, this word is very vivid. It means they have struggled along with Paul. They have fought the good fight next to Paul. This word is actually one of the words that we get athletics from. This is not a passive word. We get the word athlete and compete in athletics from this verb. Paul is saying that we are to build one another up. We are to be active and involved. And if we think about it, this makes sense. Because how can we as Christians stop the gospel at the beginning of our journey? How can we say the gospel is good enough to start on the road to the celestial city, but we don't need it anymore? You see, Paul says we must be accountable and we must be built up. We must also care for each other. You'll notice here that Paul is not really concerned with the issue at hand. He doesn't even name it. He's not concerned that the church at Philippi have the right color carpet or the right program or the right translation of the Bible or the right expression of apologetics. All of those things may be a matters of wisdom. But Paul doesn't mention any of them. Paul is concerned with the people involved here. He's concerned about what the breaking of the peace does to the people, not to the things That's what we are called to do as a peacemaking church, to care for each other. We are to have one purpose, one community, and we are to have one end in mind. Notice the chain of Paul's thought. He entreats Euodia and Syntyche to agree how? In the Lord. And then they have labored with him how? In the gospel. Why? Because they are his fellow workers whose names are written where? In the book of life. You see the the chain there? What's involved here is that as the church, we are moving toward one end. This is a bond that brings us closer together than anything else. You see, other bonds come and go. Even perhaps the most stark of them that we wear on our chests or our faces. You see this in something as mundane as college football. Last night, I was angry, shaking my fist, upset by what had happened, because Ohio State lost. And I will tell you that I hate Ohio State. But you see, that kind of affinity comes and goes based on circumstances. We see it in alliances, we make it work. We see it in plans that we make. But you see, the unity here in the gospel is toward an end that never changes. You are traveling together with those who are professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ forever. For eternity. That is a significant bond. Not, did I grow up in a certain area of the country? Did I grow up in a certain country? Do I like a certain team? Do I have a certain hobby? All of these things that we get so passionate about and then we forget that the thing that we should be most passionate about is our brother and sister in the Lord. 
And then anything else fades into the background. Do we have a disagreement about music? Do we have a disagreement about modes of evangelism? Do we have a disagreement about ways to school our children? Do we have a disagreement about the size of our family? Any of these disagreements can be worth discussing, but they wash into the background around the unity of traveling together to the city of life in the book of life. If we remember that, we will be a peacemaking church. We make peace. We seek the mission of peace. And then finally, we are called upon to maintain peace. This is a great challenge to us. Parents, you know this well. There's a fight that goes on between siblings. And after much work, and perhaps some crying, some by the kids, some by the parents, we get peace. And our temptation is to say everything's fine and turn our backs and wait for the next flare-up when we are forced to make peace again. But you see, the church is not just about making peace and putting down flare-ups. It's about maintaining peace. That's why verse 4 comes in. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. If you're looking at this verse, do you does this seem out of place? What's going on here? Maybe we think Paul is just giving a series of exhortations. Why is he talking about making peace and all of a sudden he sticks in a rejoicing? What is that all about? Why is he doing this? Paul is not doing this to distract us. He's doing this to focus us. He's telling us that the way that we begin by maintaining peace is by looking beyond ourselves. You must look beyond yourself if you are to maintain peace. You must take the focus off of yourself and your own opinions and you must look to the Lord. You must rejoice in the Lord. You see, if we are to rejoice always, the only way that that can be done is to rejoice in the Lord. We certainly can't rejoice in our circumstances all the time because one day it's sunny and the next day it rains. Because one day we have plenty and the next we have want. One day we have health and the next day we have sickness. No way that we could rejoice in our circumstances all the time. The only way to rejoice all the time is to take our eyes off our circumstances and to look to the Lord. To rejoice in the Lord. What does that mean? It means to rejoice in His sovereignty. To know that God is in control no matter what my circumstances. God is completely in control. To rejoice in knowing that God has saved me from myself and from my sin. To rejoice in what He has done in my life. And to rejoice in what He is doing right now in my life. Caring for me. Teaching me His Word. Guiding me. Building a relationship with me through prayer. That's His work in my life. Looking beyond ourselves. But we don't just look beyond ourselves. We also must look out for others. Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. This is an exceedingly difficult word to translate. 
This Greek word is one of these words that really you need about 15. And you need to remember them all in balance. See, reasonableness is a good translation, but if you read it quickly, you start to think about someone who the way that they deal with things is they're reasonable. You know, it's A and then B and then C. That's reasonable, right? And then 1 and 2 and 3. That's reasonable, right? We think about someone who's good at arguing, someone who is good at debating, someone who makes sense. But that's not really what the word means. When Paul says, let your reasonableness be evident, be known, what he means is when someone looks at you and in frustration says, would you please be reasonable? Which doesn't mean give me a good argument. It means, would you please engage with me? Listen to what I'm saying. Almost a better translation might be gentleness. The problem with gentleness is we get a picture of someone who might be a doormat. And that's not what this person is either. It is a reasonable gentleness. It is a persevering with other people. It is a quality that is essential in a Christian. It's actually one of the character requirements for elder. You see, an elder is not just called to be not a striker, not someone who is angry. An elder is called to be gentle, reasonable, persevering. This is the same kind of quality that wisdom has. In James chapter 3, verse 17, James describes God's wisdom as being peaceable, gentle, reasonable persevering with us. This means act as if others around you can see what you're doing. Have you ever had this experience? No, probably none of you ever have, so we'll make it a hypothetical. There's a, there's a man having, how shall we say, an, an audible argument with his wife. And there's some sharp words going back and forth. And the doorbell rings and someone comes to the door. And what happens? All of a sudden, everybody's reasonable, right? Stops right there. You see, what happens is we realize when a third party comes in that we're not being reasonable, that we won't look in the best light if we continue this behavior. It's perfectly acceptable behavior when there's just two of us. But you see, what Paul says is, The Lord is at hand. (laughs) Be reasonable. Let everyone see your reasonableness, your gentleness all the time. As a matter of fact, spread it out everywhere. Let everyone know that's who you are. You see, what he's basically saying is spread the gospel in your actions. Take the focus off of yourselves. Look out for others. Be gentle. Be reasonable. The third way that we maintain peace is not only by looking beyond ourselves and looking out for others, but perhaps most importantly, by looking to the Lord. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says. The Lord is at hand. Now, I think that phrase goes with what follows, but I think it also goes with what precedes. Paul is reminding them that the Lord is in their midst That the Lord of glory that he has described, who has the mind of Christ, who looked out for others' interests before his own, this is what we are to remember as we look around. And I want you to notice something. 
that Paul has a doctrinal solution to a non-doctrinal problem. The solution to this non-doctrinal problem is to look to the truth of who Jesus is. To remember that he is with us at all times. That our lives are an open book before him who sees everything. He also reminds us that the Lord is not only at hand now, but that the Lord is coming back. You see, when we look to the return of Jesus, all our conflicts wash out because we are then reminded of our mission. We are reminded of our goal. We become a church that seeks peace that our Lord might find it here in our midst. This is the kind of church that Christ's church is called to be. Not just a church that is peaceful. We'll look at that next week. But a church where peacemaking is actively found. Whereas a wise teaching elder once said to me, more than once, when we have a conflict, we should be found in the middle. One running one way, one running the other way, to meet each other in the middle. To see that conflict resolved. Not running away from each other, but not waiting for an opening. Not saying, well, I'm ready to accept an apology if it ever comes around. Not saying, well, I'm willing to give an apology if only. But running together to find the peace of God. When Benjamin Franklin was asked outside the meeting setting up the government of the United States... What type of government do we have, Mr. Franklin? Is it a monarchy? Is it a democracy? He said, it's a republic, ma'am, if you can keep it. Jesus said something more significant. He didn't say, my peace I give you, if you can keep it. He said, my peace I give you, not as the world gives. I give you my peace as a part of myself, my gospel. This is what we are called to do. To honor our Lord. To take his peace. To hold on to it. To cherish it. To spread it in our own midst. And out to a lost world. 